the other thing that has always been puzzling and worrying for us is the pharmacy tends to pay the highest rent in most shopping centre or most shopping precinct locations. And that seems inappropriate given that often pharmacy is a draw card for most shopping centres and you'd expect that there'd be some recognition of that. Hi, I'm Frank Suriani, Managing Director at Medica Capital. And I'm Phil Chapman, Director of Least One, and you're listening to The Guild Dispensary. Welcome to The Guild Dispensary, the pharmacy podcast where we dispense the latest news and updates from the Guild, and you get to hear from industry experts on business and pharmacy-related topics. If you're a frequent listener of the show, today's episode might seem a bit different. New name, new structure, new artwork, new show? That's right. The PVCM podcast has now been rebranded to The Guild Dispensary, with a bigger focus on pharmacy owners and current guild business. However, while some things have changed, some have remained, and the podcast will still include pharmacy-related interviews with industry experts. And speaking of pharmacy-related interviews with industry experts, as a business owner, you know that renewing a lease can be a crucial decision. Rent is the biggest expense for most pharmacies, so you want to make sure you get it right. But how do you ensure you're getting the best deal? What factors should you consider when negotiating a lease? And how can you navigate the complexities of the rental landscape to secure a favourable agreement? Today, we'll be speaking with two experts who have contributed to the Guild's Pharmacy Rental Report, who can help shed some light on the intricacies of the rental report. First up, it's time for What You May Have Missed, where we catch up on the latest news from the Guild. In the fast-paced world of pharmacy, it's easy to overlook some key updates. So let's dive in and make sure you're up to speed. 2024 Influenza Vaccines. The Guild is aware that pharmacists have begun receiving private stock of the 2024 flu vaccine. Whilst it is not unusual for pharmacies to receive private flu vaccination stock in late February, it does mean that the Department of Health and Aged Care has not yet published the ATAGI clinical advice for the administration of seasonal influenza vaccines in 2024. The ATAGI clinical advice is expected to be published soon. The timing of flu vaccination is important as protection from the vaccine is at its highest during the first three to four months after vaccination, at which point protection begins to wane. It is recommended that vaccination occurs prior to the onset of each influenza season, with the period of peak influenza circulation typically occurring between June and September. However, already in 2024, there have been over 15,000 influenza cases recorded, and this represents more cases in January and February than any other year from 2018 to 2024. Pharmacists can begin administering 2024 influenza vaccines in accordance with state and territory laws and the current version of the Australian Immunisation Handbook, which contains recommendations developed by the ATAGI and approved by the National Health and Medical Research Council. Activity surveillance reports such as that by the Immunisation Coalition can be of assistance when considering the local incidents. For any patient requesting the administration of a flu vaccination now, the pharmacist should discuss the benefits and risks of receiving a flu vaccination this early in the season to ensure the patient is making an informed decision. If your state is funding flu vaccinations in 2024, please refer to your local advice for program commencement. 1 April 2024, PBS price disclosure and anniversary reduction cycle indicative prices. 1st of April 2024 is the 16th price disclosure cycle that will incorporate the removal of originator brands from the calculation. 
As the originator is less likely to offer the same level of trading term discount as generics, the exclusion of the originator results in a lower average price for the drug and therefore a more substantial price reduction. With the introduction of simplified price disclosure, price reduction cycles have occurred every six months and have significantly reduced the cost of PBS medicines. In addition to this, the new strategic agreement between Medicines Australia and the government has seen an amendment to the statutory price reductions. In line with this amendment, F1 medicines which have been listed on PBS for five or 10 years are expected to experience a 5% reduction and F1 medicines which have been listed on PBS for 15 years are expected to witness a 26.1% reduction under section 99ACKA and 1.48% reduction under section 99ACP of the National Health Act 1953. The April 2024 price reductions announced so far indicated total revenue reduction of $147.7 million per annum to community pharmacy, equating to a reduction in revenue of $0.44 cents per script or $24,883 per pharmacy. It is estimated that the immediate negative impact of this price reduction on stock carried will be $1,825.30 for the average pharmacy. Wholesalers have also been impacted and are expected to lose $5.79 million per annum from this round. Equating to $0.02 cents per script, it is expected the majority of this will be recouped from pharmacy through reduced wholesaler trading terms. The results presented here also include the impact of revisions to the price disclosure arrangements, including removal of the originator brand and the change to a 30% unadjusted price reduction for price disclosure calculations once the drug has had generic alternatives for three years. The Department of Health has published indicative price reductions for 1 April 2024 or both price disclosure and F1 anniversary price reductions separately. The Guild has prepared a detailed spreadsheet to assist members prepare for these price reductions by logging onto the Guild website under PBS Remuneration, Pricing and Schedule Variations. Second stage of reforms to the regulation of vapes. From 1 January 2024, new regulations to place stronger controls on the importation, manufacture and supply of vapes have been implemented. The second stage of the reforms will commence from 1st of March 2024. A summary of the reforms that will be introduced from 1 March 2024 are as follows. 1. Importation of vapes. A ban on the importation of all vapes without an import licence and permit from the Office of Drug Control. Importers of vapes will be required to provide pre-market notifications to the TGA declaring compliance with the relevant product standards prior to importation and hold a customs licence and permit in relation to the goods from the office of the ODC under the Therapeutic Goods Act 1989. Two, specific for pharmacies, unapproved vapes may be sourced from Australian sponsors or wholesalers or directly from overseas suppliers by pharmacies. A pharmacy sourcing vapes directly from overseas suppliers will be considered an Australian sponsor of these products. If a pharmacy sources vapes from wholesalers, they may want to make inquiries of the sponsor or wholesaler about conformance to TGO 110 prior to ordering. The TGA is working to publish a list of therapeutic vapes for which the TGA has received a notification from the sponsor declaring compliance with the applicable standards. Three, quality standards. All vaping devices, including unfilled cartridge, capsule pod or other vessel, for use with a therapeutic vaping substance will be covered by the therapeutic goods framework. The updates to the TGO 110 applies to goods that are imported or manufactured from 1 March 2024. And finally, four, miscellaneous 
closure of the personal importation scheme for all vapes, including reusable therapeutic vapes. Therefore, the only lawful channel of supply for nicotine-containing vapes is through community pharmacy with a valid prescription. As you heard at the top of the show, we will now hear from some experts who have contributed to the Guild's Pharmacy Rental Report and who can shed some light on the intricacies of the rental report. And those experts are Frank Siriani, Managing Director at Medici Capital, and Phil Chapman, Lease One Director. Let's hear from Frank first. Hi, Frank, and welcome to the show. Your company, Medici Capital, it has a strong reputation for delivering relevant and also accurate analysis to Guild members and the pharmacy industry as a whole. In fact, you've contributed to the Guild's Pharmacy Rental Report by providing significant data in part two, which covers rental and leasing benchmarks. It'd be great to kick us off and provide us a little bit of an overview of that part of the report and for you to explain why you think it is so important for pharmacy owners to understand. One of the experiences or that I've found over the years dealing with pharmacy and pharmacy owners is re- really the fact that often there's a, a disparity between the information available to the landlord or the centre manager and and their the negotiators and the pharmacy owner. And it's not an area of expertise often for pharmacy owners. That The data is quite different to what centre managers will often want you to believe the data is. And uh, obviously they have their own set of data and they tend to focus on things like the average or uh, in their minds what is normal and that often is the best price they can get out of you. Um, So one of the things that we've always focused on and discussed with the Guild over the years is really the idea of making sure that there is data and that that data is segmented by the type of uh, property or the type of shopping centre. And also that people understand that there are some spurious elements to the data that need to be factored into any negotiation. Now, it is a negotiation play and to some extent data is not going to win the argument for you. You need uh, experts that are going to help you there. But, you know, I encourage pharmacists uh, or pharmacy owners to really focus on the median uh, in the distribution rather than the average because the average is more often than not uh, biased or skewed by a couple of outliers. Uh, And there are people out there that will often pay well over the odds in the expectation that they'll achieve something which is probably never manifests itself, if I could use that term, that, uh, you know, it doesn't actually happen until some time down the track. And I'm happy to talk about some stories there, but uh, no doubt. So the data is an important element, or it's one of the key elements in your negotiation. Look at the data and make sure that you have the real numbers. Now, our data is based on the actual lease, and we look at not the payments as reported in the accounts, but what the terms of the lease specify, including outgoings. You spoke there about what pharmacy business owners should and could be focusing on. I'm curious, have you spotted any trends or or patterns in the data that may be particularly relevant or, or impactful for pharmacy owners and that they need to be paying attention to? One 
element is is the fact that the average is always higher than the median and the median is a, a better start point for your thinking and you shouldn't be paying the, the median unless you've got a, a productive or reasonably expected productive web uh, site uh, and from that point of view you know you need to make sure that you've got the other qualitative aspects about the center or the location uh, ticked off as well and they include you know that there are other tenants that are going to support you there is a marketing program and there is a um, you know if, if they are suggesting that there's doctors nearby that those doctors are actually full-time and do exist uh, and that's certainly something that we found often you know that the landlord or the the agent might be representing that they've got all these doctors coming on board, but they often don't manifest. I think the other thing that has always been puzzling and worrying for us is that pharmacy tends to pay the highest rent uh, in most shopping centre or most shopping precinct locations. And that seems um, inappropriate given that often pharmacy is a draw card for most shopping centres and you'd expect that there'd be some recognition of that. Um, so we need to sort of start educating and this, this rent report started uh, quite a number of years ago uh, when we were saying to the Guild, well look, unless we start talking to the centre managers and the landlords about what the pharmacy market and context is, we're not going to get a rational economic approach to the problem and that's important. So this data is, is very uh, critical in that space. Data like this isn't what pharmacy business owners typically focus on or, or maybe are experts in. So as pharmacy owners start to engage with the report and the data, what are some of the common challenges or maybe pitfalls that they might encounter when trying to understand or, or interpret things like pharmacy occupancy cost benchmarks? It's one of those things that you've got to look at the total costs of uh, the site. Um, and, you know, clearly it's it's got to take account of the, uh, you know, the direct the, the rental amount any specific outgoings that are being paid and that should include any promotional levies and other levies that are included by the landlord or the uh, the shopping centre. Now often they'll vary. Now if you're in a strip location that's obviously owned by an individual often there may be some you know differences there because they won't be necessarily charging all these other on costs. Uh, so one of the things that we need to look at is the total uh, costs. The other thing that I suggest to our clients that we that they look at is whether the the total costs, total occupancy costs, is is reflective of the productivity of the site. Uh, whether you're paying a fair amount for what traffic is being driven to you by the site or the location. And the other thing is what, what proportion of your profit is going towards your occupancy costs. 
One of the things, Daniel, that I've found over the years is that there is no correlation. You, you know, I'm an economist, uh, and essentially, I assume that the market will always move towards an equilibrium and there's a fair price in the marketplace. Well, that's just not true. The, the, the more you pay doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a better site or a more productive site. And that's an issue that pharmacy owners need to reflect on. Um, I think another issue that they should reflect on is whether they're in the right site for the business that they're currently doing or plan to do in the future. Um, and with the move to full scope of practice, as well as other professional services, sometimes the retail site may not be the best location for the business that you're actually doing or plan to do. So they need to put that into their consideration as well. Let's say that a pharmacy business owner, after listening to you and that later on they're going to hear from Phil, they get excited about the report and they focus on the report. What advice would you give to those business owners or stakeholders who are trying to understand or interpret the numbers in the Guild's pharmacy rental report? The, the whole fabric of pharmacy has changed quite a bit over the last, you know, I've been involved in pharmacy for now coming up 45 years. So we're in a different world and to some degree they need to start thinking about, as I say, the location, is it's the right location for the business they're doing? Um, does the landlord understand, you know, the difference or the changes that have occurred in pharmacy? And particularly in the light of the changed circumstances with both 60-day dispensing and also the upcoming eight community pharmacy agreement, HCPA, uh, we need to start thinking about the construction of the site uh, for the services that have been delivered through the pharmacy. Now, there are plenty of pharmacies out there that still are heavily retail and heavily reliant on high traffic volume and, and a different uh, service model. But I think that the things that pharmacists need to think about uh, is strategically the location and whether the price is fair for what it's contributing for the, to their business or for their business. I, I'm sure Phil will talk about the negotiation strategies. I don't get involved in that. Uh, we don't get involved in negotiations. However, we do provide data often for specific applications. But, you know, it, it really does end up being a case of negotiation. And armed with the data and understanding of the data um, will assist in, in being firm in your negotiations or being confident in your negotiations with the landlord or the, their agent to make sure that, you, you know, you, you, you're getting a, a reasonable... Uh, outcome. And ultimately, it's about a relationship because you want the landlord to support you in the long term as well as understand the cycles that pharmacy will go through. And, and we're going through a reasonably tough environment at the moment with 60-day dispensing coming on board. I know you said you don't get involved in negotiations, but you did say earlier that you might have some stories that you can can share around this space. So one thing we always say is that the pharmacy rental report that 
it's a must read when preparing for lease negotiations and strategic lease management. Are there any stories or examples of, of how the Guild's Pharmacy Rental Report has been used to, to, as you said, use that data to help inform business decisions or negotiations? Yeah, look, there's certainly, um, and we're going to recommend this document be provided to your landlord or to their agent as part of the negotiation play. Um, Obviously, that's, you know, the caveat being there, if you're not paying too little, uh, you don't want them to increase your rent necessarily. But, um, you know, there's been plenty of examples of, you know, we, we have had over the years, you know, where people have believed that they're getting great opportunities and great sites um, and they pay a high rent to get in there and, and often pharmacists can be their own worst enemy in terms of being eager, too eager to get into a location, only to find that, you know, the centre doesn't have all the tenants that the agent said they would have or conversely that the doctors... Uh, that they were promised don't turn up or, can you know, they may not actually be doctors that generate a lot of scripts for pharmacy. Um, so one example I had is, you know, we, we had a, a chap that used to always get um, sites in the major shopping centres uh, and, you know, we, we realised that he was paying pretty close to $3,000 a square metre um, and he always believed that, you know, eventually those sites would be productive, but more often than not, they weren't. And uh, often he had to fire sell those businesses with a fairly difficult lease uh, further down the track. On the flip side, we, we've also seen situations where, you know, the landlord has asked for increases in, in excess of 40%. Uh, and then with the advantage of the Guild Rent Report, the, they've been able to negotiate that down to 5 to 10% um, on a market review. So there are some really good stories and it is um, a very, very useful tool to, to start your negotiations from an information point rather than an emotive point. Great chat, Frank Siriani, Managing Director at Medici Capital. Thanks for joining us on the show and sharing your views on the Guild's Pharmacy Rental Report and, of course, your significant contribution to the report itself. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for the opportunity. Do you know a fantastic pharmacy assistant? Nominate them for Pharmacy Assistant of the Year. The award, now in its 18th year, recognises pharmacy assistants by awarding them for their skills, knowledge, leadership and customer service. Nominate today at pharmacyassistants.com forward slash P-A-T-Y. Now we're going to be hearing from Phil Chapman, Director at Lease One, who is another significant contributor to the Guild's rental report. Phil, welcome. And as you're well aware the 2024 pharmacy rental report it's out it's available to members we've just heard from frank obviously but i'd like to ask you as well why is this rental report important do you think look the rental report is just such a valuable tool so the community pharmacy sector in australia is the largest retail sector in the nation and we are the only group the pharmacy is the only group who delivers resources and tools like this 
And the information in here is just so vital, not just the data, but also the how to. And there's so many issues, layer cake issues stacked up when you've got to consider a retail shop lease. The rental report tries to cover off on a lot of those. There's a lot more, it's very complex, but it's a fantastic document to get you started. And it should be sitting uh, attached to your lease. And, uh, and, and certainly you should be referring to it whenever you're having a discussion with your landlord. So fantastic document, love it. Phil, we know that increasing rents is always front of mind for people that are the leasee. What do you put these current increases in, in rents down to? What's driving them in the sector? It's like a reset uh, this period because we're coming out of COVID. I don't want to raise COVID again, but we've got the legacy now of what's happened afterwards. We had the embargo on rental increases due to the National Code of Conduct, which the Guild was in the forefront of actually negotiating with the, with the government and the Shopping Centre Council, which was a great outcome for everybody. However, the, the jet lag after that, we've had uh, an embargo on rental increases, particularly in Victoria, which had a hard luck lockdowns for nearly two years. So we're starting to see that come out. We've seen landlords dive in for uh, recapturing asset value, but we've also had the big one, I believe, that the influencer is this generational spike we're coming out of now of inflation. The CPI peaked at 7.7%, and we haven't seen uh, CPI or inflation like that come out in over 20 years. So we call it generational inflation because a lot of pharmacists out there have never seen inflation like that. So that's been a knock-on effect on rents, I believe. The good news is that we all know that the pharmacy sector is resilient. I've heard you speak about that before. What does that mean and, and, and how does it play out when it comes to leasing? How does resilience play out when it comes to leasing? Fortunately, even though the numbers, and we talk about the gross rents, when we talk about the median gross rent, I talk about the rent and outgoings, and say page on page 15 of the report, we talk about the median outcomes there of metro and rural, rents went up around 12% and overall 13.4%. But overlaying that, when we measure what we call occupancy cost ratio, which, which measures how the land performs for the pharmacy, sales went up. So the occupancy cost ratio actually went down. And that just shows amazing resilience across the community pharmacy sector. And those numbers of, uh, and we'll talk about occupancy costs in a minute, but that, that really has held the sector together where the effect of these rents is not being uh, knocked around on the P&L, so to speak. We still don't like higher rents, but the fact that pharmacy has again shown such resilience, the sales are there to actually keep, uh, keep the occupancy costs down below benchmarks. Some of the phrasing or, or labels and, and all the numbers and all the things that come together when we start talking about what's happening in this space can, can get a little bit complex. Some people can feel overwhelmed by it. How does a busy pharmacy owner best understand and, and use this report to understand how their business is performing? This is a big one for us. It's always a takeaway is know your numbers. And the simple equation we're looking for here is your occupancy cost ratio. Give that snapshot of how your business is actually performing, how the lease or the land on the lease is performing for your business volumes, which is the true measure of, of how, your, how your business is going there. So occupancy cost ratio is very simply it's your gross rent, your rent and outgoings divided by your sales as a percentage. And we can just, uh, just to identify some of those numbers, the um, occupancy cost ratios for Metro went down 4.5% to 4.47%. For rural, down 2.4% to 2.81%, which is great. But overall, 
it went down 5.96% down to 3.82. So the industry benchmarks that we, we, we have been constant for the last decade and a half at between four and a half and five and a half percent remain constant. And in actual fact, we're actually pro pragmatically skewing that down to four to five percent given these results, plus also to pending the results of the government intervention into uh, 60 day forward dispensing. We still haven't seen the results there. So if they can do that simple calculation and have a snapshot of their business there, they'll know how they're growing and then they can reach out and, and start talking about how they can repair or, or they can leverage in and say, I've got a good result here. I need to maintain and protect it. It might seem obvious, but I do want to just put a very strong underline uh, under these comments because listening to you, it sounds as though it is really important that Guild members benchmark their lease performance themselves. Absolutely. And look, we're making it easy for everyone. We've had these tools for a while now, Daniel. We have a lease simulator, which is a one-page report. It's online. And what we're doing is we've discussed with Goldcross, who are our endorsed partners. We're actually inside the members portal there. We're going to put a supplemental document in there um, in, in relation to the report with, with a lot of information, tools and resources. But the main one will be our lease simulator where they can go in, they can do it, fill it out, and it actually calculates their occupancy cost ratio for them. Plus gives some other dashboard metrics and they get their report straight into their email. So I implore everyone to use the, the lease simulator use it for planning, use it for run a report every time you're having a chat with a landlord, but particularly as a starting tool to understand where they sit with their lease. That is great news because easy and practical tools are always very helpful on the front line. Now, Phil, we could talk all day about metrics in the report, but unfortunately we're going to have to wrap it up. So I just want to ask you one last question. Based on those things that you've spoken about today, what would be the main takeaway that you want the listeners to have? There's always two with us, and every one of our presentations is always the two metrics or the two takeaways. The first one is about skewed to today, and that is know your numbers. Research is mandatory, benchmark your occupancy cost. But the big takeaway always, and the underlying of everything, is the leverage time. On the front page of your lease, there's only two things on there, the who and the when. And it's got a, a commencement date, an expiry date, so leverage time. We only lease time over space. And if we understand that, we're going to get better outcomes and better deals. And uh, everyone out there has got to be more profitable. Phil Chapman, Director at Lease One, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you and uh, get your views and, and, and hear you share your expertise. So thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks, Daniel. Always a pleasure. Always happy to contribute. Next up, it's Policy Corner where we dive into the policy world of the Guild's latest submissions. Whether it's an update on an existing proposal or a brand new initiative, these submissions have the potential to shape the landscape of pharmacy. Joining us now for Policy Corner is Scott Harris, Director, Workplace Relations and Business at the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, to discuss the industrial relations legislation. So, Scott, the industrial relations legislation, it's passed the Senate. Let's start with a, a little bit of a brief overview of what it is for Since us. Since December 2022, there's actually been four pieces of legislation put through the parliament that we've actually been advocating on members' behalf so dramatically to help them not make their employment relations or their workplace more complicated than what it is because it's one of the big things members have been telling us now Employment relations in the business is so complicated, they don't know where they're going. So one of the big things for us is try to make it less complicated so it makes it easier for them to run the business. 
So if we're just talking about the latest one, which went into the parliament in September 2023, it was a phenomenal piece of legislation, over 800 pages worth of changes they wanted to put into the Fair Work Act. For us practitioners, it was phenomenal even just trying to get our own heads around it. We live and breathe this stuff, let alone trying to educate or pass it on to our members that they can put into the business, which is not their primary role. They're just to run a business, not understand this side. So out of the 800, it got to the parliament. They started arguing over it, particularly then all of a sudden, when it went into the Senate, um, we got our interest, we got our reactions with the crossbench, and they, in that part, decided that it was not too much in place and actually got agreement from the federal government to split it in two bills, which means two lots of legislation instead of just one piece of legislation going through. So. What the first one in December 2023 was really the non-controversial ones that all employers could live with. I'll use the words could live with. Um, not our preferred performance or preferred options for our members and the business owners, but it's something that didn't didn't make too much effort to them. So you're really talking about on that the same job, same pay type arrangements, strengthen protections against discrimination in the workplace. Now, the one that did raise controversy is what they've classed as the workplace delegates' rights. It's it's a piece that there's indicating that they're trying to get, you know, beyond part as an employer representative, we don't would like our colleagues from the union side to be in there trying to run our businesses. That's what the business owner does. So this one here is trying to get the union's rights and management parts within the business. There was small business redundancy provisions, which was talking about where somebody was being wound up in administration, which didn't apply to most of our members. Um, then we looked at in strengthening work health and safety. The one that really came out is we weren't against it. Um, it's what they class as the wage step changes to the legislation. Uh, we got changes to it where it was actually done that it's applying to those people who have deliberately, intentionally, or systematically not paid their employees correctly. And it's been a strong one. Even our members agree with us on that. Those people who do that should not be protected. They should be um, had the full force of the law go against them because they're actually being deliberately uh, wage, wage thieving their employees' wages or not paying them, which gives them an advantage against other employers or not paying the right amount of money going out on labour costs. That was a good one to go with. That was reasonably non-controversial. The one that stayed in the controversial, which is the one we've just been, you indicated at the start, is in February, went through February this year. Now, that has some phenomenal changes, but very limited impact onto pharmacy itself. Um, there's a there's the changes to go with casual employment, the definition and the rights to convert. There's the changes to go with sham contracting, which is talking about where you're passing off an employee as an independent contractor. Definition of employment, which was the High Court decision last year around about the contract of employment was the primary. Now it is the totality of the job you've got to look at on the casuals. Other than that, all the rest was to deal with potentially what they class is the gig economy, 
being your Ubers, your delivery drivers, your mobile or digital label platform people. That's what a lot of the legislation, which has got limited impact on the pharmacy, which is okay, but it's a big thing we've got to get our heads around from there. That is really what that last bit of legislation that comes across. There's a lot of things in there. Now, I do know, and it's been in the media quite often, is this one that runs around right to disconnect. Uh, I'll be upfront, we're still trying to work our way through that particular one on what does it mean right to disconnect on outside of normal working hours. What is a reasonable amount on that side? We're still working on it. Um, we'll be working with the Fair Work Commission because it's been drafted in legislation, we have to do it, but it's putting in the legislation and educating the members being employers on what that really means from there. So that's a very down and dirty part of what has been going on in the last lot. Um, and out of 800 plus pages, we are still working our way through the experiment memorandums and the legislation itself on what has to happen and what has to be put into employment conditions now. You say down and dirty, I was going to say it was a great overview, but Scott, if we pair it back a little bit, as a broad overview, why do we need this legislation and particularly the changes that are being made? I'll run the employer part. Two thirds of what was being proposed by the federal government is no requirement to come in. It was their election concept because it is a Labor government at the moment and a Labor government traditionally supports employees a lot more than the employer. And the, the federal government decided and thought about it that they believed employees didn't have enough protections from the employer. So that's why a lot of these changes have come about. Oh, and we're very clear an from the employer associations, including the Pharmacy Guild, we have never went against the part on wage theft. We've actually stood up and said that if people are engaging in wage theft, prosecute them to the full part. But we always said the wage theft has to be criminal in the way that it's deliberate, intentional or systematic, not just because somebody made a mistake by not putting the right dollar amount or the right sense in the payroll. So we've supported a couple of the conceptual ideas because they do protect both the employer and the employee, but two thirds of them was because the federal government believed there was a problem, which we didn't believe on our sides and has introduced this legislation to make these changes. I'll say up front from, from an employer's point of view, a lot of it is going to cause more confusion in the workplace. What applies to me, what doesn't apply to me? Because there are some exemptions for what is classed as a small business under the Fair Work Act, not under the Australian taxation laws or under the Treasury laws, but the Fair Work Act, which is 15 headcount or less. So we've got some discrepancies in there. As you said, there's... 800 pages of changes. You spoke earlier that in some of those changes, things like the gig economy, they don't actually affect the, the, the pharmacy industry. But what is in the legislation now that will affect members? Three major points that I've identified straight up on what will definitely affect the members and the new changes is, I'll go with all the changes from December onwards as a generic point to go look at it. One is the wage thefts. People have to ensure, even though they're doing the best they are, they've got to put even more compliance in to make sure they are doing things right in a way of have they got the right 
wage rates in the pay system. So if they've got their AR rostering systems in place to go with it from there. One that comes up and happens often is, has the employee had a birthday for a junior employee? Have they increased the wages because they've increased their age? Um, second part, they go casual definitions or who is a casual and have they been given the opportunity or requested to convert to permanent part-time? And if they have, have you actioned their request to go with it? And is it a reasonable request? The other one to go with it is the right to disconnect. That there is definitely going to affect the workplace. Um, it's determining what is the right to disconnect. I'll use an example for the pharmacy industry itself is if you've got pharmacists on duty through the day or through some of their business hours and they provide prescriptions and medicines to a patient or a client who's coming through the door, and all of a sudden the questions come up after on the next shift about that application or provision of those prescription medicines, is it reasonable to contact that person who was on the first shift who did the action or is it not? Um, safety's got to come into this question too, which hasn't been considered or worked through as deeply as we can. Same as um, the other one is workplace, uh, delegates' rights in the workplace. That's going to affect all businesses because it's becoming a workplace right now is where if the workplace has got union members or have got mem employees that could be covered by a union, they could elect somebody to be the union or the delegate worker in that place. Um, and that leads into use of facilities, that use time, that leads into being involved in decision-making processes. And the other part that goes with that particular one, they talk about what is industry interests. We're still trying to work that ourselves. Even the Fair Work Commission, who I've sat down with in the last week and that, is still working through that to make sure what we put into place is going to be easy to understand, simple to look after, and all parties, being employer and employee, can abide by what is their obligations. Um, it's going to be and it is going to be time consuming, but we hope, and I'll use the word hope, that we get it right for employers and employees. So, Scott, still lots of work, understanding, and application to come, and we're all going to learn as we do that. How long until these changes actually take place, though? If I use the current, the latest lot of legislation to go with it, it's actually on day of royal assent or when it gets proclaimed in Parliament, there's a series that starts. There's another series that starts six months after the day of royal assent. There's stuff that are coming in on the 1st of July 2024. There's other ones coming in 12 months after royal assent. And then there's still ones coming in in January 2025. So they've spread them out a little bit to give us time to get them in the place. But Looking at the moment and what we're working on as a Gilders and Employer Association for our members is the series of ones that have to be in place by the 1st of July 2024 this year. And that's talking about the, new, the delegate rights, the right to disconnect as two of the major ones that have to be in place by the middle of this year. We're trying to get ourselves right on that to run the education programs and make sure the information is there available for employers and employees on those particular points. I can use the analogy, um, the one that passed in 
December 2023 being the last of closing the loopholes version one, it's got not coming in till December uh, until January 2025 for wage theft on for some small businesses, but not for everybody. It's very staged the approach to go with it. And I should say at the same time is this is only one aspect of the whole lot. We still have got cases in the Fair Work Commission from the previous lots of legislation to do with pay equity, uh, work value cases going through the Commission um, being introduced two at the same time. All right. Well, that all sounds very complex, but also very interesting. And it's obviously going to have application for members. So, Scott, how can members find out more information about this legislation? I've got three ways, and I'm still trying to work out the best way myself on how to get it out to everybody. I can tell you, you do that yourself, Daniel, on different aspects of trying to get information out there. So we're looking at three major ways of getting it out to members. The first one is we're going to run a series of member updates, either through uh, information sheets going out to them or webinars or information sessions like this one, talking about what those changes are and how they're actually going to impact members. The other one is we're looking at doing is on the Guild's website. We'll have a dedicated part within the WR blog site about when a change is coming, what does that change mean and what should an employer or employees be doing about it? And then the other one is just normal mail out through our members' uh, monthly communication in just that, saying this is coming. Have you done? Have you started your actions or obligations to make sure you're compliant? Then the last one, if you're still lost, give one of your workplace relations advisors a call and we'll walk through what we're talking about. Excellent. Well, Scott, thanks for joining us and providing an update on the industrial relations legislation. And thank you, Daniel. And I just hope the members, being the employers and the employees, think about finding the information they need or give us a call and have a talk about what's going on. A big thank you to both Frank and Phil for sharing their expertise on the subject today. I hope these insights have been helpful for you and that next time you look at the rental report, you feel empowered to start negotiating for a better lease. Thanks for listening and until next time, I've been your host, Daniel Oyston, and you've been listening to episode one of The Guild Dispensary.